Today we'll be reading from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. If you're reading from the Bible under the chair in front of you, it's on page 886. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. You may be seated. So I said earlier, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. We've been, we took a break from First Peter. We've been in John chapter 1. Um, Pastor Jonathan's going to finish up um, the Advent series this morning with those verses that Michelle just read. And so if you would just join me as I pray for Pastor and just pray for us um, to receive um, what the Holy Spirit would have us receive from the teaching that we're about to receive this morning. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this man of God. I thank you for this brother. I thank the way that you have first rescued and redeemed him. And I thank you for the way that you have crafted and given him the gifts and the ability of leadership, of teaching and preaching your gospel, the whole gospel, the full truth. So, Father, just be with him this morning. Let him boldly proclaim the truth of your word through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through himself, but through you. Lord, give us tender hearts to hear and receive and to be changed not by Jonathan but by the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in us to serve you and love you in ways that we cannot even fathom. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys are um, in the herd, ages four to second grade, go ahead and take off with the Kaufmans back there. You're good, man. You're good. Um, man, I don't know if... If, you, if life in your house finds you in this stage, you, I'm sure it is if you are um, in a house with little ones, but we're just, there's just a buzz in the air, right? I mean, we're staring down the barrel of Christmas, y'all, right? I mean, it's coming right around the bend. Our little ones, they're, they're ramping up, right? So we've entered into the phase of how many days until Christmas? How many days until Christmas? And this isn't like days apart. This is like five minutes apart. It's like, man, listen, it hasn't changed like from five minutes ago, right? There's, there's a buzz. There's a buildup. The whole month of December, you know, four little ones. Um, you know, I've got um, eight, six, five, a little one now who is, who is three. Um, there, there's just a crescendo. The whole month of December builds up to that, that Christmas morning. The story of Christmas um, is a story that just builds up to a climax, right? I mean, there's, it's going somewhere. It's aiming for a point. It's just the story builds and builds and builds. It comes up. Christmas Day's here. We're celebrating. We're, we're loving on Christ. We're sharing gifts with, with family. We're, we're, we're making um, much of the love of God that he's given to us as he's gifted himself to us. We're giving gift to others. Um, the story of Christmas, um, it builds up and it, it goes somewhere. Um, every good story leads to a climax. It leads to, to that point where all things are building up and leading up to it. So you read any great story, the characters, the information you get about them, 
where they go, where they live, the details the author gives. It's all for a purpose, to take us, to pull us into that story, to, to drag us along, to get us to buy into to the narrative, to the, to the idea that's being told, to get us to that point where, where we're just waiting, we're just long. Like, what exactly is going to happen? What is he building up to? And that's what helps make a great story a great story, is that that climax bringing us to that place where it's like, yeah, we're full in, we're, we bought in, we, we want to know what, what's happening. And John the Apostle, as he does this with his gospel, it is a big story. It's got several, several points of climax, several points of high, high tension where Jesus is interacting with those who are against them. It's got several points of, of high, high points where he's revealing bits and pieces of who he is, but in a, in a nutshell, in a very real sense, when you read the first 18 verses of John's gospel, the prologue, his introduction, it's a little miniature story. This idea of building up to a high point, this, this crescendo of this introduction, this prologue, comes to us in verses 14 through 18. John isn't just disseminating information just for the sake of giving out information. He's been leading us along. He's been building up to something. There's been a slow and steady build starting all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1. The first Sunday of Advent, the story of Christmas, as we see in the prologue, he, he comes out of the gates and he's, he's aiming high and he gives us those first four verses. He just, he just simply lays out the nature of the Word. This is who we worship. The Word. He's divine. He's creator. He's eternal. He's life. He's light. And then if that wasn't enough, he, he ramps up by inserting this, this seemingly odd testimony of John the Baptist. We, we question, like, why, why here? But it, and actually, in the grand scheme of things, when you zoom the lens out of the, the introduction of verses 1 through 18 to insert John's witness to the true light in verses 5 through 9 makes a lot of sense because what he's doing is he's magnifying Christ. He's, he's building. He's going, yes, there is this one who is the Word. He is creator. He's divine. He's eternal. He's life. He's light. But he is so worthy of our testimony. He's so worthy of our witness. Last week we saw verses 10 through 13, the reaction to the true light. So we've got some, some drama in our story. You, you would assume that because of who this high and lofty one is, this word, he was coming into the world. Verse 9, he was actually in the world. Verse 10, what we would expect is that all would bend their knee in submission to the full, the full glory, the full authority of the Creator, the one who took upon flesh and enter this world, but we don't get that. We start wondering, well, well what's going on? Is, is everyone going to deny him, or are only some going to receive, or, or is everyone going to come and receive and believe? We, we start asking these, these questions, and John shows us, yes, most people are going to reject. The world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but by the grace of God, there are those who receive, who believe, who are born again, who are brought into the family of God. And then he comes finally to verses 14 through 18. 
And what we don't do is we, go, we don't go down, but John, in, in very simplistic John language, just takes it up a whole other level. And what he does is he comes and he just unpacks for us more of the beauty of the Word. This Christ child who we've been saying everything that we've been reading of in the prologue, which is true of the Word, Jesus Christ Himself, was just as true of this one that we, we celebrate the birth of, this Christ child in the season of Advent. In these verses, the apostle is going to show us something very simple. The two points come from verses 14 and 18. These are the high points. These are the things that the apostle wants us to know. The Word became flesh. We're going to see that in verse 18. And as the Word became flesh, He achieved something in becoming flesh. This eternal world, this, this creator, this, this one who is in sovereign rule and reign over all things, took to himself flesh, came into this world, and what he does is this. He achieves this. He alone is the one that makes God known. The word becomes flesh and makes God known. And the apostle wants, to see, wants us to see this, and he's going to show us this in two ways. He's going to make just a flat-out statement found in verse 18. He's going to tell us no one has ever seen God, but there is one upon whom we can gaze that perfectly and fully reveals God. No one has ever seen God, but He, Jesus Christ, has made God known. And that's just His statement. He doesn't qualify it. It's just stuck into the category of fact. This isn't up for debate. He is the one who makes God known. And then we ask the question, well, how does Christ make God known? And John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, will go back and we'll look at verses 14 through 17, and we'll see three ways in which Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, makes God known. So in your copy of Scripture, look at verse 18, and what you'll see is this. John writes, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. He, Jesus Christ, the only God who is at the Father's side, He is the one who has made Him known. Just in case we were starting to drift into the category of not fully understanding who, who the Word is, even though the Apostle John has been laying out systematically, starting from verse 1 all the way up to verse 13, he's just been giving us, this is who the Word is, this is who the Christ is, this is what He does, this is where He comes from, this is, this is what He's about. Just in case there's, there's, there's any confusion or just somehow we've slipped into the category of ambiguity and we just don't quite know what He's talking about, John comes out of the gates and he says this very simply, Jesus was no ordinary man. He alone has achieved what no one else has ever done will ever be able to do. Jesus Christ is the one who makes the invisible God visible. For whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. This is the apostle summary statement to his prologue and the way by which he magnifies Jesus above all else. He comes along and says this, yes, these things are true about the word. These things are true about him as the life and as the light. And he's come into the world. Some have denied, some have received. But let me just lay out for you very plainly who the word is. He is the one who makes God known. If you want to understand God, if you want to know who God is, you don't have to sort of shrug your shoulders and 
lift up your palms and go, I don't know where to look to know and understand God. John the Apostle says this, the exact representation of who God is. If you want to understand God, you look no further than Jesus Christ. And he does this in a very simple simple sentence. He first gives us a negative, then he gives us a positive. He gives us a negative. He says no one has ever seen God. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. This is unpacked in Scripture. It's supported throughout. This is true, but when, when John the Apostle says no one has ever seen God, he's, he's saying more than merely, yes, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. So there's a, that sense, yes, that no one has ever seen, seen God. There is this sense where, yes, that's true because he is spirit. He's, he's invisible, and no one has ever, ever seen God. But, but there's, there's, a, there's a weightier substance to, to John's meaning when he says in verse 18 that no one has ever seen God. For him to say, no one has ever seen God, what he's saying is this, no one has ever been able to behold God in his full majestic glory. The splendor and the majesty that belongs to God alone, unhindered, unveiled, unadulterated, pure glory as emitting from the Father himself, no one has ever been able to lay eyes upon God in this way. No one has ever been able to see God and live. Now, what this doesn't do is negate the experiences of of some other men of God. So, So when you start reading through verses 14 through 18, we won't be able to unpack it much today, unfortunately, but if you go read the book of Exodus, all of this language that we're going to see today, this language of the word coming flesh, this idea of God dwelling among his people, this idea of God having glory, this idea of God being full of grace, being full of truth, this idea of what the law does through Moses, what grace and truth does through Christ. If you go back to the book of Exodus, this stuff is just tattooed everywhere all over the book of Exodus. And what John the Apostle doing is actually, we're going to see here in a little bit, like I said, we won't be able to pack it as much as I would like to, but if you go back and read today Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34, you will see that John must have had his Old Testament open when he was writing this because he is pulling bits and pieces out of this Old Testament account, and specifically Exodus 33 and 34. Because when you go back and you read Exodus 33, 34, you read things that seem like a contradiction to what John just said here. He says, no one has ever seen God. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, what you see is this. Moses saw God and talked to him face to face. Now, that sounds like a contradiction. But what we understand is when you read the book of Exodus and Moses wanted to, to... speak with God face to face. It really wasn't a, a full-blown God in his majestic splendor, his, his unadulterated glory there before Moses. Moses wasn't able to see that. There came a point in time where Moses said, God, you are great. You are awesome. You are mighty. Please let me see your glory. And God says, that's a no-go, man. If you saw me as who you are in my full, unhindered glory, you would die. Man cannot see God in his full glory lest he die. He was not allowed to see God's glory. For God says, Exodus 33, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Our mind might drift to Isaiah When you go read Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had a vision of the Lord. He said, I saw in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high lofty, seated on a throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. 
So you might think, well, John here must have not, not known Isaiah because Isaiah says, I saw the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. And here John is saying no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen the Lord. But when you go and you pick apart Isaiah chapter 6, what Isaiah actually saw wasn't the full-blown splendor of the Lord. All he saw was the hem of his robe that's attached to the king. The hem of his robe was so majestic, so full of glory that it, it undid Isaiah. He wanted to see the Lord. He had a vision of the Lord. He did not get to see God's glory in its unadulterated view, but he saw just merely the hem of his robe in the temple, and this seeing of the Lord nearly did Isaiah in. It led him to the place where he said, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He just merely saw the hem. Like, right, this, this blows me away because Moses was asking for the glory. Glory in God and grace says, man, you can't see this. If you saw this, it would undo you. Isaiah just catches a glimpse of the hem of the robe attached to the king himself, and it undoes him. That language of woe is Isaiah saying this, all I've done was catch the hem of his robe which is filling the temple, and he's calling down damnation on himself. That is what it means for him to say, woe is me. He says, all I caught was a vision and a glimpse of his hymn, and I realized this. He is God, he is glorious, he is great, and I cannot stand any more of this. I need to be reconciled to this God, and all he saw was a vision of the hymn of his robe. That's glory. That is glory. See, the consistent Old Testament assumption is that God cannot be seen For if a sinful human being were to see God, it would bring death. But the way John writes, verse 18 in chapter 1, the introduction to his gospel, when he couches it in the negative at the beginning and says, no one has ever seen God, what we assume is something else will come along. There's the implication that there is one whom we have seen. John says, no one has ever seen God, but you almost sense like he's he's saying this, but... I understand, I'm agreeing with the Old Testament assumption that no one can lay eyes on God in his full-blown glory, but there is one upon whom we have laid eyes upon. No one can see this, this, this unmasked view of who God is and live, but there is one, I'm going to argue, this is John talking, that we have laid eyes upon who has that same glory as the Father, who has that, that same majesty as the Father that we have seen, we have walked with, we have talked with, we have ate with, and we have seen God as we have seen Him. The implication of verse 18 is this, that there is one whom we have seen. And to gaze upon him is to gaze upon God himself. This is what John is driving at when he says, He, Christ, Jesus Christ, has made him known. He, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the only God. So it's a referencing back to what we saw that first week. Who's at the Father's side. It's again a referencing back to the first week. If you want to know what he is like, look to Christ, for he has made him known. John records this of Jesus. Jesus says this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Paul agrees with John in the way he writes Colossians chapter 1. He says this, he is the image of the invisible God. In most of your Bibles, when you look at that last phrase of verse 18, where it says this, he, 
has made him known. Those four words there, has made him known, are just one word in the original. And it's the word that we get exegesis from. Exegesis is a $5 word that means this, to interpret or to explain. So when we say we do exegetical preaching, hopefully that's what this is right here this morning, is where we come and we say, we're going to study verses 14 through 18 today. We're going to understand what it means in context. We're going to understand what John, the original author who wrote this, meant. We're going to seek to understand it. We're going to seek to interpret it. We're going to seek to explain it. That process of doing that is called exegesis, to interpret, to explain. What John the Apostle says here is this. If you want to understand God, if you want to interpret God, if you want to explain God, there is one who does this, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus exegetes the Father, interprets the Father, explains the Father, and then he's done. Statement made. No one's ever seen God, but there is one upon whom we can look and see, and when we look upon him, we're looking upon God himself, the one who is at the Father's side, so he is co-equal with God. He is the one who explains God to us, and we have laid eyes on him. So then the question then becomes, well, how has he done this? If this statement is true, which we're arguing it is, how in the world did Jesus Christ accomplish this? And so that's where we go when we look at verses 14 through 17. Look in your copy of Scripture there. John the Apostle writes this, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. This Word was full of grace and truth. See, the question becomes, how has Jesus done this? And John shows us there in verse 14. He gives us a bit of a table of contents. He's going to show us that Jesus exegetes, Jesus explains the Father by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus shows us the Father in the way that he has glory equal to the Father. And Jesus shows us God the Father, by the way He is full of grace and truth. So first, Christ makes God known by what He does. What does He do? He has done this. He has accomplished this. He has achieved this. The Word became flesh and came and dwelt among men. So for the first time since since verse 1, the apostle comes back and he reintroduces this title, The Word. We read it in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God, and that's the last time we see that phrase until here in verse 14 where the Apostle John says this, this Word who we've been talking about for the past 13 verses has taken to himself flesh. What, what John the Apostle is talking about is the, the incarnation, this idea of incarnate, God incarnate. Incarnate is, is two Two ideas put together. In is this idea of into, incarnate is this idea of flesh. God Himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came into this world in flesh. He took to Himself flesh. He was enfleshed. He he became and took upon Himself humanity. To note for John that the Word became flesh expresses the reality that God took on humanity. 
What he's saying is all these things that we've been seeing that are true in the first 13 verses, what he's saying is this, the infinite has become finite. Eternity has entered time. The invisible has become visible. The creator has entered his creation. And this majestic word was not far off. Rather, the word took to himself flesh and he entered the created order of humanity. Because what he could have done was this. Like, all right, it wasn't just enough for the Apostle John to say this word that we've been talking about is taken to himself flesh and he's just sort of hanging around up in the heavenlies somewhere. It's not enough just for him to say the word became flesh and just sort of like visited for a little bit and then got out of Dodge really quickly. What he said is this, that the word became flesh, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the very God himself, the very God that has the kind of glory that Isaiah caught a glimpse of, that Moses asked to see, has taken to himself flesh, and he has entered the world that is in full tilt rebellion against its creator. See, the Son of God not only took on a human nature, but he also came and dwelt among us. And the idea behind dwelt among us is this idea of of tabernacle from the Old Testament. It's this idea of temple. So when we read this, what we're supposed to see is this, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Apostle John, what he's doing, he's dropping in a little hint here, and he's saying, listen, there was a time when God used to dwell among His people. And it's like he's reading the book of Exodus. He says, remember that time back in Exodus when God's people were supposed to build this tent, the tent of meeting, also called tabernacle? They were supposed to do this because as they built it and they got done building it, God himself would come and dwell in this tent, dwell in this tabernacle, and it would be God dwelling with his people. And it was meant to point forward to something else. It was meant to point forward to the actual temple that King Solomon would build. And it was the exact same idea. We want to build God a home, a place where he can dwell among his people. We want God to be in the midst of his people. It's God himself saying, I will be their God. They will be my people and I will dwell in their midst. I'm not a God far off. I'm not a God far removed. But I live where my people are. And what John is doing is this. What he's saying is, we look back to that Old Testament idea of a tabernacle being built, this tent being built, this temple being built, so God could dwell with his people, but when you look back to the Old Testament, that idea just didn't quite pan out. There comes a point in time in the book of Ezekiel where the glory of the Lord disappears, moves, it leaves the temple. God's people were sinful, and so God left, his dwelling was no longer with his people. And what John is saying is this, as we look back to that shadow, the shadow of the tents of meeting, the shadow of the temple where God dwelt with his people was meant to point forward to something greater, to that time where God himself wouldn't just come down and to to visit his people just in a tent or just in a temple, but God would come down and visit his people as himself. This is the idea behind Emmanuel. When you go read Matthew chapter 1, When we say, what is the meaning of Emmanuel? Emmanuel means this, God with us. This is why Jesus is called Emmanuel. Truly, the dwelling of God with man is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ makes God known by what he has done. 
He has taken to himself flesh. He has dwelt among men. And now we can look to him and go just as much as that was true of God in the Old Testament, dwelling with his people, we can now point at Jesus Christ and go, Jesus Christ, who is God? This is God dwelling with us. The other way that Jesus Christ makes God known is by what he displays. When you look at the middle of verse 14, he says this, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. In a similar way, what what John the Apostle is doing is saying, listen, two ideas that went hand in hand in the Old Testament were this. Whenever you saw the idea of the temple being talked about, there was always this idea of the glory of the Lord. Whenever you saw this idea of this tent of meeting, the tabernacle being talked about, there was always this idea of the glory of the Lord. There are two closely related ideas. It's because in the Old Testament, a person knew God was present among his people when you could see the glory of the Lord. So the whole book of Exodus is leading up to this big crescendo where it's God saying, you're my people, I'll be your God. For me to dwell with you, you were to think this way, you were to operate this way, you were to do these things, you were not to do these things. Now, I want you to build a place for me so that I can reside in your midst. And they were building this tent, this tent of meeting, this tabernacle, and God had very specific details and multiple chapters are given to it. It's those chapters that you're, when you're reading through your Bible in a year, you're like, oh man, you know, it's like, all right, they're just building stuff and there's a bunch of measurements and you're just clipping through all of these chapters because it's just like, hey, make sure that the tent is like this big and this wide and make sure this guy can cut a piece of cloth this way and make sure this guy overlays gold on wood this way. And you're like, man, what is the point of all of this? Because then after God says, do it this way, then there's like five or six more chapters given over to them just actually building it the way God has talked about. And you're just like, man, what is the point to like these 12 chapters given over to building stuff? And it's for this reason alone. The last verses of Exodus chapter 40 go like this. Once the tabernacle was built to the specifications of the holy, glorious God himself... Moses records these words, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to even enter into this tent of meeting. Why? Because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This idea is intimately married together in the Old Testament. This idea of when God says, I'm going to dwell with you, the glory of the Lord was there to come to the tent of meeting, to meet with God, the very glory and the majesty of the living God was there. It's so glorious and majestic. If you go and read Exodus 34, it records that Moses' skin was glowing and he had to veil his face because he was just on the outer edges of like the afterglow of God's glory and it was having such an effect on him. And here, what we have John the Apostle saying is this, not only can we look back to the Old Testament and go, just as much as God dwelt with his people, now we can say Jesus is the full expression of God dwelling with his people, but we can look back to the Old Testament and we can see this idea of God's glory being intimately wrapped up with him dwelling with his people, and we can point to Jesus and go, just as much as that glory was true of God in the Old Testament is just as true with Jesus Christ. When he dwelt with us, his glory was there. God's glory is fully expressed 
in Jesus Christ. And this is another way that he makes God known. Verse 15, seemingly out of place. You start reading through verses 14 through 18. Again, just like earlier, verses 6, 7, and 8, it's like, man, we're trucking the word, he's truth, he's life, he's light, and then all of a sudden it's like you just, you know, you falter a little bit. It's like, man, why, what's this bizarre testimony about John the Baptist in there for? But we, we explain that, and then this exact same thing happens back here. I mean, what we want to do is read the end of verse 14. The word was full of grace and truth. Jump right to 16, for from his fullness we've received grace upon grace, but we can't. Verse 15 is tucked right in there, and I think what John the Apostle is doing is, again, Reaching back to John the Baptist, because what is John the Baptist's witness about Jesus Christ? John the Baptist says, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. See, the apostle even goes further and bears further witness to Christ's glory by inserting another record of the Baptist's testimony. The glory of Christ's person is seen in his preexistence. That's what he's talking about here. When you go read the book of Luke, what you have is this, that John the Baptist, who is the cousin of Jesus, actually, was born six months before Jesus was. And in the Old Testament, or in the, in, in the New Testament times, just to be born before somebody usually gave you rank, because I was born before you, I'm older than you, that means I am more important than you. But you now have John the Baptist saying, even though I started my ministry first, even though I was born before Jesus, Jesus is actually like a lot higher than I am. Why? Why is he a lot higher than John the Baptist? Because he was before me. Before you, how? Everybody's sitting there wondering this. We know when he was born. We know when you were born. He wasn't before you. And this is John the Baptist referencing back to these ideas that John the Apostle was making back in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. In the beginning was the Word. Before the beginning began, there was the Word. Jesus Christ is eternal. And in this way, John the Apostle once again ascribes to Jesus Christ another attribute of God, and he says, when you look at Christ, you're looking at God because I'm describing Jesus Christ in the exact same way that I describe God. Lastly, thirdly, Christ makes God known by who he is. Christ makes God known by who he is. So we've seen what he displays, glory. We see what he's done. He has come. He has achieved. He's accomplished dwelling among us. But Christ also makes God known by who he is. He is Christ, full of grace and full of truth. The word was full of grace and truth, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the nature of the word made flesh is that he is full of grace and truth. See, Jesus is the full expression of God's grace and truth for all the necessary grace and truth needed for salvation is available in Jesus Christ. The good news message of Jesus Christ is that from his fullness of grace and truth, we have all received grace upon grace. So again, if you go back to Exodus chapter 33 and 34, there comes this point in time where Moses says, man, I really would like to see your glory. I really want to know who you are. Would you please be so kind as to show your glory to me? 
And God comes along and says, listen, the very thing that you've spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses says, please show me your glory. And and God says this, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my goodness before you. Because if my glory were to pass in front of you, you'd basically, this is the John Davis paraphrase, you'd be turned into like a lump of charcoal. Like you'd just be scorched. You would die instantly. No human in his mere humanity can stand before the full resplendent glory of God. And then later on, God says this. This is him passing before Moses and presenting his goodness before him. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, a God slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The summary idea of this declaration of God from himself is summarized by John the Apostle with these two words, grace and truth. God the Father, as revealed in the Old Testament, is full of grace and truth, abounding, abounding in grace and truth, full of mercy, full of steadfast love, full of faithfulness, full of truthfulness. And so once again, what John the Apostle is doing is saying, hey, remember that time back in Exodus when God said these things about himself? These things that were true of God back then, they are exactly true of Jesus Christ. But not only are these things true in the sense that they link and connect Jesus Christ to God the Father, but what it does is it comes and it brings something to us. See, just as much as Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth, this fullness of grace and this fullness of truth actually comes to us and we receive from that fullness, but what do we receive? We receive grace. And not only do we receive grace, we receive grace upon grace. Now, that's a a bit of a tricky phrase. It's like, well, what exactly is the apostle driving at? What does that mean that we receive from the fullness of grace and truth found in Jesus to the point where we get grace upon grace. What exactly is he saying? And I think the answer to help understand what he's saying there is found in verse 17. He says this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, there was a measure of grace and truth found in the Old Testament law for the totality of the law and the prophets all pointed forward to Jesus. See, God was gracious in the Old Testament, but the law was not an instrument of grace. The law cannot bring the grace and truth necessary to save someone. So what I think what John the Apostle is doing, again, like with Exodus open, is saying this. When we understand the law, when we understand all these things that Moses wrote, we can understand this. God was gracious in giving us this. Because in the giving of the law, what we see is this. My heart is bent away from God. I'm not in right standing with God. I don't have a right relationship with God. I am far from God. And it's like John the Apostle saying, there is a mountain of grace in God loving us in this way, but we need to know something very specific. The law was never to be used as an instrument of grace. We can't just merely read the law, understand the separation between God and man, and go, man, that's incredible. What we need is this instrument of grace to point us forward to the one who can save us. And that's exactly what the law did. The law was constantly going, hey, bro, you're messed up, but look, there's one who's coming who can actually save you. 
Hey, you're, you're in sin. You don't have a right relationship with the Father, but let me point forward to the one who can save you. This is the whole beef that John has as he's writing out the things in John chapter 5 and chapter 6. All these Pharisees who know the law by memory come to Jesus and they're trying to punk him out. And Jesus says this, listen, you guys are in love with the law, but you think you have salvation merely because you know the law. And you don't understand that all the scripture and all the law actually points forward to your need of me. And here is John, the apostle, foreshadowing these conversations he's going to get to by saying this. Yes, we have grace. There is a sense in which the law that was given through Moses is a grace because it points forward to our deep-seated, sin-rebellious hearts against God. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, we have the full grace and truth that is needed for forgiveness, for salvation. And that is the grace that is heaped upon grace. We have the grace of the law. It points to our need for a Savior. But praise be to God that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that grace that is upon grace, has come to us. Because grace and truth personified. Grace, it's truth and it's full expression. Grace and truth manifested in the person of Jesus Christ has come, was pinned to a tree so that you and I could be made right with the Father. This is what the apostle is talking about when he says we have received grace upon grace. For the grace and truth necessary for salvation and forgiveness came through Jesus Christ. Boom, there he is. Introduction done. If we were to keep working through the gospel of John, what you would see is this, that he just turns right to the testimony of John the Baptist, then he just gets right at it. He's constantly presenting stories before the readers of his gospel saying, if you read this, you need to come away with one thing, Jesus is God. If you're reading this, you need to come away with one thing, Jesus is the Christ. See, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus Christ alone has made him known. See, this is the climax of John's prologue. The combination of verses 14 and 18. And John ends this way for one reason, so that you and I would stand before our God with open-mouthed awe. Right, like we're supposed to read the prologue and come to this and just go, like I don't, I can't, I don't have a quite have a category to grasp this. Like, do you hear what John has just said? Isaiah, who caught just a glimpse of the hem of the robe of the King of Kings, was screaming out, "I be damned!" Because I have just caught a glimpse of his hem. And John the Apostle is saying, "This one." This one whom Isaiah caught just a glimpse of the hem of his robe has actually taken flesh upon himself and entered humanity so that he would die not for sins that he had done, but he would die for our sins. Like, I I want to say that I get it, but then I would just be a liar. Like, I don't have a category for how the God of all creation would enter this world of rebellion and would take upon himself flesh. The muck and mire of humanity. Like, like people could walk up to God and lay hold of God himself because in their touching of Jesus Christ, they were touching the creator of the world. I mean, this goes back to what I said a couple of weeks ago where we come and we, that's why I love that a story in Matthew where the wise men come and they're, they come into this baby. I mean, a baby, right? A baby who's done absolutely nothing worthy of worship. What do they do? They come. And they bend their knees before him. 
And they stand there with like open mouthed awe and wonder, just gazing upon that child. Why? Because they got it. They got that when they're looking at this baby, this isn't just some, you know, little punk nosed, snotty kid who needs who needs to have his diaper changed and needs a bottle. Like this is a little child who is God the sustainer, the king, the creator, wrapped up in flesh, and he has come on a mission to seek and to save the lost for grace and truth upon grace upon truth upon grace upon truth is wrapped up into this little child. How do we respond to this? Man, this is what we were talking about with the elders earlier this week. I think one of the responses that we come to this is like, we're supposed to, I think, just stand. We're supposed to finish verse 18. And we're just supposed to like sort of stand there with like dumbfounded awe. Like open mouth awe. Like we're supposed to stand there and go like, that's insane. I don't have a category for this. Like this is my savior. This is, this is describing the one who has saved you. And so often, like, I approach Christmas just so stinking flippantly, right? Like, turning this Christ child into just something we do in this season. But the apostle won't let us do that. So here we stand this Advent season fully recognizing that the Word made flesh has entered this world as the Christ child born into the muck and mire of humanity. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, but he couldn't. Isaiah caught a glimpse of the hem of his royal robe and it undid him. But we stand here and what we can say is this. We read the testimony of one whom said, I don't know much, but I know this thing. I have laid eyes upon my God made flesh. And here is my testimony. And we can step back and we can take these words and go, these words are true. And as they describe the Christ, we believe them to be true, that our God was wrapped in flesh. See, no other, no other religion can make that claim. No other, no other truth system can make that claim. Every other truth system that proposes itself to be truth, every other religious system that proposes itself to be the way between God and man always says this, God is far, God is aloof. Do these things so you can be right with God. But what we have in Christianity is something that no other God in the history of the world has ever made the claim to do. He gave his word and said, if you want to be right with me, you must do these things. It is the law. But when giving of the law, the law came back to us and it constantly says this, achieve this level, do this thing, and you can have right relationship with the Father, but the law was never meant to be an instrument of grace, and all it did was just condemn and condemn and condemn, and we realized we cannot be made right with the Father. The law is screaming that into my face, and so what God does, plan A from the beginning, is says, I will send my Son as flesh into this world to do what the law needs to be done. The law needs to be achieved perfectly, and Christ has done it. So he wraps himself in flesh, comes to earth, lives like we live, so that he could be made in human form in every way, except without sin, live the perfect life, fully pleasing and satisfying to God the Father, so that when he died on the cross and all of our sin was poured on him and all the wrath due us was poured out on him, he could die the death that needed to be done because sin brings death, but then he could just come punching up out of the grave, showing that death's reward which comes to us, which is separation from God, it's been defeated. Death has died. Death has no victory. Christ has won. And it all starts with that little baby in the manger. See, we'll end with this. I love what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 11. Because our brother Matthew says the exact same thing that his, his friend and his co-disciple John says 
all throughout his gospel. See, the grandeur of Advent is the grandeur of the Christ who makes God known. Matthew says the same thing in Matthew chapter 11. Listen to verse 27. Matthew writes this. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. This is Jesus talking. So I can almost see him doing this. No one knows the Son except the Father. The Father knows the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus reveals the Father. The Father knows the Son intimately. The Son knows the Father intimately. And if you want to be counted among those who know the Father intimately, come to me. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor or are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. I'm the one who can make you right with the Father. Come to me. Take, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John, Matthew says in his, in his verses here, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And those who want to know the Father like the Son knows the Father, he says and he beckons them, come to me, come to me, come to me. This is our hope. For those of you who don't know and are not in an intimate relationship with the Father, who do not know salvation, hear Jesus say, come to me. You can find rest for your souls. For those of us who have received and believed, who are children of God, the same call of come to me is issued by Christ himself. Come to me, stand in awe. Come, find rest for your souls. Come, come and know peace. It's the call that we take up upon our lips as we scatter this coming week into all, all different areas of life. What we do is we come to our coworkers, we come to our laborers who we work with at, at work, we come to the places of family, and we come to the place of relationship. But what we do is we say, what we say is, listen, listen to Christ. Come. Christ is calling you, come, come to me. And we, we proclaim this to, to a lost and dying world. And as we said a couple weeks ago, we don't celebrate Advent merely in the first coming of Christ, but those who have actually heard the call of Christ have come to me, those who have come to him and have found rest for their souls, what we do is then we take upon the words of Christ himself and we issue them back to God the Father. And what we say is, Lord Jesus, you come to us. Come and consummate all of these things that are wrong, this world that is broken, this this world that is just ajar, this world that has sin wrecking it and dumping it upside down because you have called me, you've planted within my heart that call to come out and say, Lord Jesus, come, come, come again. See, I'm going to end just here in a simple prayer. And see, my, my, my sincere prayer for us as Delta Church is that this Christmas we would truly heed the call to come to him. Some of you need to heed the call of coming to him in salvation. Some of us need to heed the call of coming to to Christ as believers, but just to find rest for our souls and to know peace for our souls in this situation, in this season of life. See, most of us are stepping into awkward family situations. 
Some of us are suffering the death of a loved one in this season. Some of us know that there's going to be certain people where we're going, and there's just going to be hard and just really bizarre conversations. Some of us don't have pleasant memories about Christmas because we have unpleasant families. Some of us have parents that have led us astray because they did not live out the way their roles ought to be as, as, as Christ has called us as parents to live out. And for you, the horizontals of Christmas have great potential to lessen the clarion call of Jesus Christ to say, come to me. But in each of these situations, Jesus is so much better. So when you look to the horizontals and go, man, I'm going to a place, man, there's just going to be awful, awkward conversations. I mean, my, 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 my Uncle Harry's is going to say something dumb about Jesus, and I know it, and how I'm going to stand like no one else is going to defend Christ, and I'm going to have to be that, that awkward guy to do it. You're going to go maybe to a parent's house where that parent has not done a good job, and then she's like, you don't have a lot of love for your parent, but what are you going to do there? There's a great potential for that horizontal of the Christmas season to creep in and sort of kill and deaden your soul to bring great anxiety. But what you can do in those moments is go, I see how my parents did not do well, but I've got a better father. Your kids might have their hearts bent on a certain gift, but what we can do is go, if, even if they don't get that gift, we have Jesus Christ, the ultimate gift. In each of these situations that we're going to be stepping to here in these, this couple of weeks, my, my goal is this, is that we as a people would hear the call of Christ of come to me. I am better than anything that this world can offer. So what we do is we build ourselves, we anchor ourselves on the foundation, on the vertical of Jesus Christ. We heed the call of come to him. And what we do is we are released out into these areas, not banking our hopes of a good, healthy, happy, awesome Christmas on just maybe that conversation won't happen. Maybe I will get that gift. Maybe this person won't say that thing. Maybe this person won't show up. But what we can do is go, because I'm anchored here in Christ and I've heed the call to come to him, I can go out there. And whether these things do or don't happen, I can be satisfied in Christ. He is the fount of grace and truth. And as we go forward, my hope and my prayer is that we will be anchored on him, resting in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ who has made God known. He is the fullness of grace and truth, and you and I have tapped into that fount of grace because he's called us and because he's saved us. Let's pray. God, we love you because you have first loved us. We can cry out in our hearts, God, God, send Christ to us. We can call out to Christ, Christ, come. Because the Son who reveals the Father has revealed the Father to us. By grace, we heard the call, come to me. And by grace, God granted the ability for us to come. So God, I pray that as my brothers and sisters here, as we just scatter off into various situations, various unknowns, not sure what this coming week has to hold and score, my, my honest and sincere prayer is this, is that 
as we experience the horizontals, just the conversations and the places and the things and the trips and the everything in between, that we would not lose sight. By your grace, Christ, help us to not lose sight of Christ. That our eyes would be stayed on Christ. That as emotions flare, we would be stayed on Christ. As conversations, good or bad, happen, we would be stayed on Christ. And that this would be a season where we help people and point them to the one who has made God known, Jesus Christ himself. All of humanity needs to come to Christ in salvation and beyond that, all of us who are believers must come to Christ again and again, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Spirit, assist us to constantly look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. God, you are good, and it's my belief that it's your desire to magnify Jesus over this this coming week in all of these ways. I ask that you would do this, not so that we would be made great, but so that Jesus Christ would be made great. And it's in these things I pray in his name.